This is me a few years ago, the baby. Um, around the age, this morning we had a dedication, and it's around the age that I was dedicated here uh, on this stage. It's also around the age that my parents, who are also in the picture, uh, moved to Brazil, where I grew up. Now, why am I saying all this? The reason that I am saying this is I think we all have, or I know we all have lenses that we view the world through. And we have all different kinds. There's loads of examples. One example for me is the lens of having grown up in Brazil. So when a Brazilian walks into a room, I spot them a mile away. I can hear them talking Portuguese or by the way they're walking. You wouldn't necessarily notice that. You would see the same person. But because of the lenses you're wearing, you might not notice that they're a Brazilian over there. And we all have different lenses um, that we view the world through. More recently, a couple of other lenses have been put onto the way I view the world. Parenthood. Suddenly, I started noticing where there was nappy-changing facilities. Now, it's not that they weren't there beforehand. It's just that I suddenly started noticing them. And then more recently, we got a dog. Now, I'm assuming everyone didn't get dogs at the same time as me, but suddenly, I started noticing the amount of people that had dogs. I started noticing what kind of dogs, what their owners were like, where they walked, which cafes you're allowed to go into with a dog. Now, like I say, we all have different lenses that we choose to put on or not to put on, and they affect what we see, but also what we don't see, what we notice, and how we react to them. Now, I am going to be looking at a passage in the Bible from the story of Esther in chapter 6. And it is set a long way away, a long time ago, but it's about a very familiar topic, cutthroat politics and power struggles. And the lens that we view it through, I think, is very important because some lenses we can choose to put on, some happen to us. I didn't choose to go to Brazil, but it's a lens that I have. And some we're almost subconsciously take on um, without control, but some we do choose. And because of that, how we view what is going on all changes. You will all have mixed feelings as you look at the people on the screen, whether it be of apprehension, whether you think that they should be in the positions they're in, whether they shouldn't, whether they can be trusted for the people that they're making decisions for and the people they're responsible for. We'll all have mixed feelings. And the lenses that we view the world through will affect how we view that. Now, I've been working through the book of Esther for a while now, and we're at chapter six, which means we're halfway through the story. And so I'm going to catch you up on the story of Esther so far and the power struggles going up and down in this kingdom, because like any kingdom, there are power struggles. And we see them all around us now, and it happened in Esther's time. So I'm going to introduce you to a couple of the characters and some of the power struggles that have already gone on so far in this story. So at the top of the Persian Empire, two and a half thousand years ago, we had King Ahasuerus. And he was a power-hungry guy who loved pomp and ceremony, loved being the center of attention. And in one of his big schemes to make himself look good, he had an uh, empire-wide uh, beauty contest where women were forced to come, and he kind of tried them out, and he chose himself a queen from amongst them, which is where Esther came in. So Esther is his queen. Now, she comes into the story with another character, her uncle, Mordecai, who is a Jew, but he tells Esther, keep it secret that you are Jewess, probably to protect herself. 
And so she does do that. And her uncle Mordecai is a guy who sits at the palace gates, whether that was for his job, we're not 100% sure. He might have been keeping an eye on his niece from a distance. And he'd brought her up since her parent, his parents had died. So he was like a parent to Esther. So we have these two characters in the story. Now, while Mordecai was sitting at the palace gates one time, he overheard a plot to kill the king. And suddenly, he, the king was put in danger. But Mordecai, instead of deciding to allow this to happen to the guy who had forcefully taken his niece from him, told Esther, and she told the king, and it was all sorted out, and the guys that were going to assassinate him were killed instead. And so everything went back to the status quo. Everyone was happy again, more or less. And then comes in, now this story is told, it's a bit like a pantomime, it's quite dramatic, it's quite extreme, there's twists and turns. I suggest you read the whole story, it's a great read, better than any uh, telenovela or soap opera that you watch. This guy comes in, Haman, he, in the pantomime, is the guy that you would boo. Haman comes in, and immediately he comes into the story, he is put to the top of the kingdom, above all of the other king's servants, he is in charge. And all of the other king's servants, apart from the king, everyone else, bows down to Haman, except for Mordecai, Esther's uncle. He refuses to bow down to Haman. And this infuriates Haman, because Haman loves himself, and he loves the power, and he wants everyone to bow down to him. But Mordecai doesn't. And so Haman decides, right, what I'll do, I'm not just going to harm him. I'm going to get the king, and he manages to get the king to sign a decree to annihilate all of the Jewish people in the entire kingdom. At this point, they don't know that Esther is a Jew, so they think she's all right, but it actually puts her in a bit of danger as well. But this is to kill Mordecai and all of his people. But Haman doesn't settle at that because he's a bit impatient, and he's still getting annoyed that Mordecai won't bow down to him. And so he decides, he spends the night getting a gallows built to hang Mordecai on. And on this specific night that this gallows is being built is when we come in with the story today of Esther 6. And Dan's going to come up and read it for us. And I am going to, while Dan is reading, I'm just going to highlight a few things because I think it's important, the lens that we read things with. And I just want to point out a few things that I noticed as I was reading this passage. Okay, Esther 6 from verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. That night, the night that Haman was building a gallows to hang Mordecai. Could be coincidence, but it happened that that night, sleep fled from the king. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, again... Was it a coincidence? It's an interesting choice of thing to do if you can't sleep. Have the records of the nation read to you. I mean, maybe he was looking to like fall asleep quickly. But this is a guy, not to be crass or anything, but he had hundreds of women at his disposal. He had loads of servants that could have come and pampered him, entertained him, done anything. And he chose to have the book of records read to him that night. Could be a coincidence. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Tana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Again, interesting, isn't it? 
That is the bit that they happened to read. There must have been hundreds of records. Loads of stuff had happened. This had happened four years beforehand, and yet they happened to read this one. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So on this very night, the specific record that talks about the guy who Haman is building a gallows for is read, and on this very night, the king realizes nothing has been done to honor him, the guy that was going to be killed in the morning. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Again, could be coincidence that it happens to be Haman that's standing out there when the king needs help. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honour? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honour more than me? This guy is so full of himself. He can't imagine that anyone would be thinking about anyone apart from himself, especially when they're talking about honouring someone. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honour, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. He goes all out. He's like, great, this is what I would like done to me. This is a perfect opportunity. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honour. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. And now the penny drops. And this is the way that Esther's story is told. He says the whole lot without mentioning who it is. And then at the very end of all the names he could have chosen, he says Mordecai. Can you imagine Haman's reaction at this? So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai before whom you've begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Thanks, Dan. And so Haman's family they notice these coincidences that I've pointed out, but they think this is more than coincidence. You're doomed. But we want to uh, have a little look. So much the same as politics today, within a few moments, things seem to turn on their heads. Those that were at the top are suddenly at the bottom. Those that were at the bottom are suddenly at the top. And how we, do we deal with this kind of unpredictability, unreliability within the leaders around us? How do we deal with it? And I think one of the uh, most important things in this, and we'll look at 
this in this story is the lens that we view it through. It makes such a difference. And I just thought to look at the difference that a lens makes on how you view something. Just have a look at this little girl as she sees her parents clearly for the first time. Hi, pretty girl. How are you? Enjoy your way. There you go. Open the ball. There you go. There we go. Oh. <laughs> Hi. What are you? Oh, <laughs> Can you see so well? And it's not just how we view things. It's whether we see things at all, whether we see them clearly. It makes a huge difference, the lenses that we're viewing through. And the lens that we view Esther through, the story of Esther, is told through this lens. God is absent. It's weird for a book of the Bible. There's only one other one that does this, but God isn't mentioned once in the whole book. And this is the lens. God is absent. These things are going on. There might be coincidences happening. This is what is happening. And I thought, oh, this is strange for the Bible, but actually, it's really apt for the society that we live in. Because seemingly, God is absent in so many parts of our society. He's not mentioned, and he's not credited with anything. He seemingly isn't doing anything. God is absent. And so I want to look at this story. Is God absent? Is God absent in the story of Esther? Is God absent today? And it can be argued, and there's a lot of reasons why it can be argued. Firstly, bad stuff happens. Why is it, if there's a loving God, how possibly can we believe that a loving God would allow bad people to rise to the top, like Haman, and good people to be forgotten, like Mordecai? Why would these things happen if there was a loving God? And I think this is precisely, there aren't any easy answers, but one of the things to notice is that if he is a loving God, that's exactly why this would happen. Because if he loves us and he wants us to love him back, he can't force us. And if he can't force us to choose him and to choose his way because he wants us to love him, then bad things are going to happen because not everyone is going to choose him. Some people are going to choose to promote Haman's in this life and to let them loose and to approve their plans. Some people are going to choose to crush down the people that annoy them, like Haman did. That's just what they're going to choose. But if God didn't allow us to choose, then we couldn't choose to love him. And he wouldn't be a God of love. Love wouldn't be able to exist in that way if we couldn't choose him and his way. It wouldn't be love, it would be force. But that's well and true. But how can God be present, a loving God be present, when things take so long, when the route to things happening seem to be painfully slow? Why does God let them suffer for so long? Why do Esther and Mordecai and her people have to go through so much? And only at the last minute, a few coincidences kind of come in. Why do they have to go through all that? If God is a powerful God of love, why didn't he just intervene and sort it out? Now, if you've never read Lord of the Rings, you've never watched Lord of the Rings, and you're not interested and you hate it, I apologize, but I love it. And uh, it's a story 
quite a long story, granted, about a group of allies who work together to, on a long, long journey that they walk most of, get through all sorts of treacherous adventures and all kinds of things, to get into their enemy's land where there is a huge pit of fire to destroy a ring which is basically symbolic of them destroying evil and bringing peace back to the land and good winning over evil. Now, a lot of people think this story is horrendously drawn out. It is uh, three long films, if you look at the film, where you've got to sit there for about nine hours to watch it all. And people say, goodness me, it is far too long. Why do you like this? And because of this, an alternative ending uh, well, an alternative plot altogether has been suggested. Now, it's a little bit on the edge of what we're allowed to show in church, so I'm warning you now, but I think it's hilarious. This is the alternative plot for The Lord of the Rings. Oh, Lord of the Rings, should have ended. The ring must be taken deep into Mordor and cast back into the fiery chasm from whence it came. One of you must do this. I have an idea that just might work. Sauron! Hey, Sauron! You suck! <laughs> <laughs> was incredibly easy. Yes, it was. Can you imagine what it would be like if we had walked the entire way? Don't be so... Oh my gosh, can you imagine? That's ridiculous. Yeah, one of us might have died. No way. That's, oh, that's a good one. We'll never travel that distance. Apologies if that's gone completely over your head. But looking at how God... Why doesn't he make things more straightforward? Why doesn't he choose a quicker route when there's suffering going on? And again, there's no easy answer to this. Um, but how can there be a God when bad things happen? Where well, he is a God of love and he allows us to choose him. And why doesn't he choose a more straightforward route? And part of this is that he is a God of purpose and he chooses to use us. Now, for me, Lord of the Rings is far more than a story of good over evil. It's a story of companionship, of friendship, of people working together for a greater purpose. And God is a God that enjoys giving us a purpose, using us, and that is interested in the journey, not just the final outcome. 
And actually, that journey is really important, and he wants to use us. He, in the story of Esther, it isn't always obvious when he's in there, but he, he isn't mentioned once, but he gives roles to Esther, to Mordecai, to all of Esther's people in them being saved from what is going on. He chooses to use people. Just the fact that God isn't mentioned doesn't mean he's not using people in the story, that he is not walking with them. Now, that's all good. He's a God of love. He's a God of purpose. But he does intervene. There are coincidences that happen in this story. What about things going on around the world where people do die needlessly? Where governments are allowed to annihilate whole peoples? Where our world is being destroyed? What about then? Where are the coincidences there? Where is God in that? How can God be present there? Surely God is absent. Now again, there's no easy answers. But one thing that helps me is to look at perspective. Now, if you think of the youngest kids in our church, if you think, if you think of my daughter, Allegra, who's over there, she's six years old, these events here are events that have happened. You might be wondering, what the heck is the link between all of these events? Now, they're in date order, and they begun, begin things that happened in the decade that I was born. But the lens is on what my daughter remembers. For her, COVID has been around her whole memorable life. It hasn't been around her whole life, but she can't remember anything before it. That is her world. The pandemic, COVID, masks, all of that kind of stuff. That is her life. All that other stuff, she doesn't remember any of that. I mean, to be fair, I don't remember some of that. But, um, but it's outside of it. But there is far more that happens. And sometimes for some of us in the middle of COVID, it seemed like everything. It seemed like the whole world at the time. Now that we're moving out of it, it seems slightly more in the past. But on a far bigger scale, this is what it's like with God. His lens is so much bigger than ours. He sees such a bigger picture. And when we choose to put on God's lens, it gives us the love, and we know that we are loved by him, and that changes how we view things. It gives us purpose and something to work for and to do life for. But it also gives us hope. Because for God, he sees the bigger picture. And when we trust, in God, and in his lens, it gives us hope. And it's not that the final outcome doesn't matter. God of purpose, he does mind what happens, but it's also not that he doesn't care about the stuff that goes on that's wrong. He does mourn with us. He does lament with us. He is grieving for the things that go on in our world that are unjust but he sees the bigger picture. He sees that there is hope. He sees that he is building his kingdom and that that will come, that death is not the end, that there is more beyond death, that there is hope beyond what we can see. So when things seem like the end of the world, when they seem like our whole world is crumbling down, when we choose the lens that God gives us, we grieve, we mourn, but we have hope through it because we know he is there beside us and that there is hope because although we can't see it, there is more 
beyond what we can see. God is a God that brings hope. And in a bit, um, we're going to have the opportunity, if you want to, to have communion. There's a cup and bread on either side. And the reason, I thought we weren't going to have this tonight, but the reason I wanted to have communion tonight is that it highlights the differences between the lenses that society gives us, the lenses that come with the king, Esther's king, and the lenses that come when we choose to serve King Jesus. And I just want to look a little bit at the highlights of the differences between the little story of Esther and the huge story of God and the difference it makes which lens we choose to put on. We don't get to choose all the lenses we put on, but this is our ultimate choice, and we do get to choose this. And which lenses we put on are so important. In Matthew, it says, your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a musty cellar. If you pull the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you will have. It's so important what lenses we choose to put on or that we don't put on at all. It makes such a difference to our lives. And so when we look at these two kings, Esther's king chose to honor a guy who had done something good, who had saved his life. King Jesus chose to honor us despite all the mistakes we'd made all the choices where we didn't choose his way, where we didn't choose love. And he chose to honor us anyhow because he loves us. Esther's king was dependent on his advisors. Every step of the way in the story of Esther, he is dependent on his advisors. He has to ask Haman what to do to honor this guy. King Jesus isn't dependent on anyone, but he chooses to use us. Esther's king chose to honor a guy and it cost him nothing. He sent someone else to do all the work and he honored him. Jesus also walked around a city. He wore, but instead of sending someone to do it, he walked himself. Instead of being carried on a horse, he carried a cross. Instead of wearing a king's crown, he wore a crown of thorns. Instead of being put a robe on him, He had his clothes taken off him and divided up amongst his enemies. Instead of him costing it nothing, it cost him his whole life. The one who should have been, who was was totally righteous, who should have been honored, was humiliated totally in order to honor us. That's the kind of king that I want to follow. Esther's king honored this guy for a few hours around a city or however long it took, and then it was over. King Jesus honors us, if we choose to accept it, honors us for eternity, and it is a long-lasting thing. But he did that in a topsy-turvy way, because instead of being powerful and having everyone down below him, he chose to bring himself down in order to be in a relationship with us forever. And it is topsy-turvy. It doesn't fit with our way of thinking. Instead of putting himself up, he had his body broken 
for us. He gave himself up. He had his blood shed for us in order that we might join him, that we might have hope, that we might have a purpose, that we might know his love and so be transformed and have lenses to view the things that so worry us but have different lenses of hope. So which lens do we choose? Our lenses or someone else's lens of self-serving often with all the mistakes that people make or his lens of love, of purpose and of hope. Which one will we choose? And what happens when we choose his lens? If we choose his lens, actually what happens is similar to Mordecai. He went back to the gate. He went back to normal life. And seemingly, that is what happens. Tomorrow, we go back to our homes, to our workplaces, to our schools, to wherever we find ourselves in normal life. We go back to where God has placed us. Seemingly, the world is unchanged. But because we know that we are loved, so sacrificially loved, because we know we have a purpose to build his kingdom, which is so different from the kingdoms around us, because we know we have hope, we are changed. And so the way that we treat that difficult neighbor, the way that we treat that difficult colleague, the way that we treat that classmate who is irritating, the way that we look at what is going on in the news and the anxiety that that causes us, actually all of that is transformed. And so because we are changed, we act differently. And because we act differently, actually, the world begins to change and we start to see glimpses of God's kingdom. As he uses us to build that kingdom, we start to see glimpses of it. Not completely yet, but we start to see glimpses as we live honoring God. Honoring God, King Jesus, not ourselves, which is what society asks us to do. So, if you would like to offer your life, maybe again, maybe for the first time, but you would like to choose his lens. You would like to give your life to honoring King Jesus, to living for him, for his kingdom, rather than for what the world pushes us to live for. If you want to choose the God of love, the God of purpose, the God of hope, the God of salvation, in the difficult times and in the celebration, then we invite you. The worship group is going to come back up, and we invite you as we're singing together to God, uh, let the words go over you if you want, join in the singing, whatever is helpful to you. But if you would like to, to go to the sides, uh, on both sides there's two tables, if you would like to share in communion, to remember this king as a way of saying, yes, I want you to come into my life, I want you to change the way I view things, I want to choose your way of self-sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good king. Father, we thank you that you are with us when times are difficult and that you give us hope. We thank you that you give us a purpose to live for, a kingdom worth serving. And Father, we thank you that you love us, that you love us so much that you gave up your life for us, to forgive us for all the stuff that we've done wrong, the bad choices, 
but you want to honour us anyhow, and so you made it possible on the cross. So we remember what you did as we eat this bread and as we drink this cup. In your name we pray. Amen.